Well, it's a joy to be able to open God's Word with you together this morning. Please turn to Acts chapter 21. As you turn to Acts chapter 21, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper together at the end of service. And uh, when I read Scripture here in just a moment, you can, if you didn't grab the elements as you came in, you can take that, that time to do so. If you're new to our church, just know, or you're visiting this morning, you don't have to be a member of Bethany Community Church to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. We, we do require that you be a believer. You've placed your faith on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, trusting in Him. We ask that you not be uh, out of fellowship with uh, another church, that you've uh, been reconciled to other believers as much as is possible with you. And so we, we ask of, of that, that of you as, as you partake of the Lord's Supper with us. But we would invite all who are in Christ to partake of the Lord's Supper with us at the end of our time, and you can grab the elements as, as I read, uh, when we stand up to read Scripture here in a, in a moment. Also, just uh, as, as Kayla mentioned, it was a great time of vacation Bible camp this, this week, and I was talking with Richard Craig yesterday, and we are just talking about how, what a testimony it was to have so many of you, you serving and caring for our, our kids, what a joy that is, and, and you know, as we do parent-child dedications, we as a church, we will often uh, make a commitment to care for our kids. And so as you served at Vacation Bible Camp, you're doing that. You're fulfilling that commitment to, to care for our kids. And you say, well, I wasn't able to do that. What in the world could I do? Good news. Uh, we are signing up for Bethany Kids uh, th- this morning. There's a, there's a sign-up, a table out there. You can, you can sign up for Bethany Kids or nursery, other types of ministries. There's lots of opportunities to, to care for the, the children that God has blessed us with. And what a great testimony it was this last week, how much we love the children that God has given us. So we're in Acts chapter 21. Paul is getting ready to conclude his third missionary journey. He has just been talking with the elders at Troas, and then uh, the, the Ephesian elders there in Troas, and then we come to verse 1 of chapter 21. If you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read verses 1 through 16 together this morning. Luke writes this, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they, all with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, 
we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem and Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. You may be seated. May God be glorified through the reading of his word this morning. Let's let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your word this morning. Father, as we think about the purpose of our life and our desire to glorify you, we, we pray that we would glean from your truth of this morning words of life, of wisdom, that we'd be submissive to all of your plans for us, and with joy walk the path you have set before us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I was recently reading an article about the the importance of of focus, of of singularity of focus. And so, for example, like when you're you're doing a task, how important it is sometimes to be able to, to focus on that one task, and the article was talking about how sometimes we do things like, like email, but as we're doing email, we're also talking on the phone, we're trying to deal with a difficult email and a difficult phone situation, the kids are fighting, we're trying to do all sorts of things at once, and how difficult that is if we don't have focus. And as I was reading that article, I was, I was thinking about this picture that we have of, of me finishing up my, my seminary degree, and I'm writing like one of my last papers, and I'm, I'm there at, at the computer typing, but as I'm typing, Little Austin is sitting on my lap, and, and Hannah is draped over my shoulders trying to wrestle with me. And th- there was not singularity of focus in that moment. There was uh, a lot of fun, but uh, that, that, I'm sure that paper did not turn out as well as it, it would have if I had had singularity of focus, right? And the article also talks about how it's not just true in tasks, it's true in our, our life. And the, the article was from a secular perspective, but it was talking about as a as an individual, you want to have a, a focus that helps you live your life. Have a goal, focus on it, accomplish it. There is a biblical idea behind that, of course. Paul would say this in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, he says, I, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count all things as rubbish. Why? Because of his singularity of focus. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul says, look, I have this singularity of focus. My desire is to, to know Jesus Christ. And everything, everything besides that I consider loss in light of the surpassing joy, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. And so I'm willing to endure suffering as I pursue that great treasure, that great prize. That's the singular focus of a believer, the the glory of God, knowing Jesus Christ. None of that, I hope, is surprising or controversial to you this morning. None of your 
are shaking your heads going, well, I've never heard that before. I think all of us would say, yeah, not our heads. Of course, that's our focus in life. We want to glorify God. and want to glorify God by knowing Jesus and treasuring him. All of us are nodding our heads. What I want to talk about this morning is an obstacle to that that takes place sometimes. And it's maybe a surprising obstacle. Sometimes the obstacle to us in pursuing the glory of God is going to be another believer or other believers. Sometimes even well-meaning believers are going to sometimes be an unintentional impediment to us in pursuing the glory of God. Maybe they're going to be an impediment because out of a a well-meaning desire to care for us, they're going to say, look, that path that you're desiring to walk is a hard path. Don't walk that path. Walk this other path instead in which there's there's greater ease and comfort. They they care about us, and out of a well-meaning but uninformed understanding of the purpose of life, they're going to encourage us to walk a different path. Or maybe it's a believer who's living kind of a fleshly life, and the idea that we would walk and complete abandonment to the Lord Jesus Christ is kind of convicting to them, and they're saying, don't do that, don't worry about that, do this instead. Other believers can sometimes be an impediment to us in pursuing the glory of God. Here's here's the main idea I want us to think about this morning, the, the truth I want us to glean from this text. Whatever it costs you to live for the glory of God, joyfully pay it. Whatever the cost to you to live a life, live in abandonment, pursuing the glory of God, joyfully pay that cost, even when other believers would discourage you from doing so. Whatever it costs you to live a life dedicated, devoted to the glory of God, joyfully pay it. I want to look at three things from this text, three connected truths that that help us as we think about pursuing the purpose of life in light of the cost, even when that cost might include disappointing those whom we love, those who might discourage us. Here's the first truth, kind of a foundational truth here. Again, I don't think this will be controversial. Number one, pursue God's glory. Number one, pursue God's glory even when it will be costly. We begin verse one and look at your text with me. Luke is giving us kind of the last steps in the journey that Paul is taking to Jerusalem. And remember, Luke told in the Gospel of Luke the story of Jesus going to Jerusalem and the difficulty that awaited Jesus there. And as he tells us Paul's journey to Jerusalem, we see some parallels. Paul is making his way towards Jerusalem. His eyes are set on Jerusalem. And as he he makes this trip to Jerusalem, we see this sense of impending doom that awaits Paul. He departs from the Ephesian elders at Troas in verse 1. And I want you to notice a couple things there. First of all, notice that Luke uses the word we in verse 1. He says, we had parted from them. And so apparently Luke has joined Paul again and is traveling with him. And then I want you to also notice that word parted from them. That word parted, it implies more than just leaving a physical location. So there's leaving a place and then there's parting from a place. I was in Walmart this past week, and I, I left Walmart. I didn't part from Walmart, right? In fact, I joyfully left Walmart. No, no, nothing wrong with Walmart. Fill in the blank of any store with me, right? But two weeks ago, whenever I was saying goodbye to my daughter and new son-in-law, 
I, I departed from them. They parted from me. They left. They were excited. You know, they're joyful, as they should be. I was parting from them. There was this emotional attachment to these people that were leaving, and there was a, a sense of, of loss as you, you see them parting. It's, it's what needs to happen, but there's this sense of, oh, I, I love these people, and I'm, I'm sad to see them go. That's the word that Luke is using here. It shows us something about Paul's relationships with the people that he's ministering to. There's a, a parting. And then Luke kind of gives us the itinerary. They're headed for Jerusalem. That's the ultimate goal. It says they, they go to Kos, and then they go to Rhodes, and then they go to Patera. These are, these are different kind of one-day little sailing jaunts. One's like 30 miles, 60 miles, 90 miles, and they're kind of sailing along the coast there in Western Asia region and, and making their way uh, across the sea. They arrive there in Patera, and they find a ship that's going to cross to Phoenicia. This is going to be a, a longer journey. This is a, a bigger boat. This uh, ship is going to be traveling some 400 miles over the open sea. It's going to take five days or more. And so they, they get on this boat, and they begin to sail. They sail to the south of Cyprus. Cyprus is there on their left. We see that in verse 3. And then they go into Syria, and then the Phoenician region of Syria to the city of Tyre. Now, so they're in Syria. There's this region of Syria called Phoenicia, this coastal strip, and then Tyre is the city there, and they've, they've arrived there. Syria, they're in the part of Syria that's just butting up against the area of, of Palestine, and so they're kind of the southern area. They're close to Jerusalem is my point. They're about 100 miles away from Jerusalem now. And as they arrive there, Notice verse 4. It says they, they seek out the disciples, and these are probably disciples that are, who've been evangelized from the work done in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, when the church was scattered due to persecution. It talks about believers going to this region. And they seek out these disciples, and they stay there seven days. And then look at verse 4, last part. It says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So there's these believers here in Tyre, and as Paul spends time with them in the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, which brings us to a question. We know that Paul is going to go to Jerusalem. In fact, not only do we know that Paul is going to go to Jerusalem, we know that the Spirit has told him to go to Jerusalem. In fact, remember what we saw in Acts chapter 19. Paul, it says, resolved in the Spirit, in verse 21, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And then in Acts 20, he tells the elders in Ephesus, he, from Ephesus, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. In other words, the, the, the Spirit desires me to go here. I'm, I'm being compelled in my obedience to the Spirit to go where he tells me to do, to, to go, which is Jerusalem. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So these believers in the Spirit are, are telling Paul something, and Paul's been told to go to Jerusalem. Are these things in contradiction with one another? I think the answer, of course, is no. It's, it's not. What we see is that these believers have been told in the Spirit that imprisonment awaits Paul, just as Paul has also been told. I think what they're saying here, notice that Luke isn't quoting them exactly, I think what they're saying here is very similar to what Agabus is going to say in just a few verses. Hey, imprisonment awaits you, suffering awaits you, and so as they, as they have that truth revealed to them, what the believers are saying to Paul is, look, because this is going to happen to you, don't go. 
right? Don't go. This is awaiting you. Don't go. Paul recognizes here that two things are true. A, I need to go to Jerusalem. B, suffering awaits me in Jerusalem. I need to go to Jerusalem. A, suffering, imprisonment awaits me in Jerusalem. B, B doesn't negate A. The command to pursue God's glory and walk in obedience to him is not conditional upon what will happen to me if I do it. Your foundational truth that you build your life upon must be, I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to glorify God through my faith in Jesus Christ and by the enabling work of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to strive to walk in obedience to him. And so my encouragement to you as we think about this, these verses is to ask yourself, am I ready to, to pay whatever price God would call me to pay in order to walk in obedience to him? I'm going to pursue God's glory even when it's costly. Have I counted the cost of walking in obedience to God? A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to, to take my, my nieces and nephews to a, a candy store, the Hollands candy store here in town. And, and this has been a trip that I've been building up for several uh, weeks with my nephews and nieces when I would talk to them or whatever. i say, hey, when you come to Washington, we are going to take you to a candy store, and I'm going to buy you all the candy you want. That's my goal. And I, I told their parents, I said, I'm going to give your kids so much candy that they throw up. That's <laughs> got two kids. Mission accomplished, right? So uh, that, that, that was my goal, right? And so we're in, uh, a couple weeks ago, weekends ago, we're in Holland's, and we are just have nieces and nephews are having a great, they've never seen so much candy in their life, and they have these paper sacks, and they're just dishing all this candy into them, and they're go, and they, they have these huge stacks, and we, we, we uh, put them on the little scale to see how much they're going to cost, and they take the sacks, and they go over to the table, and uh, I, I get ready to, to pay, and I have this thought. I'm like, oh, I don't know if they take credit cards here. <laughs> and uh, I, look at, I look at the clerk, and, and he says, yeah, our credit card machine is down. <laughs> and I look back at my nieces and nephews, and they're covered in candy. I mean, they've got the paper sacks, and they're just, and I, I, look to the, I look to the guy, and I'm like, I don't know what to tell you here. Uh, I can go to the ATM real quick, or I can work in the back. I don't know. <laughs> what we're going to do. I wasn't prepared to pay the price. Now, they, apparently there's this thing where you can, they did this amazing technological fix. They turned on and off the machine, and then it worked again. But we got, we got out of there. We have to be prepared to pay the cost, right? We don't go into situations unprepared to, to, to pay. And as we think about our, our relationship with the Lord, we say, okay, God, I want to be prepared to, to pay whatever price you're going to ask me to pay as, as I pursue your glory. Whatever that's going to be, and the reality is that obedience is going to mean suffering oftentimes, and that doesn't phase Paul here. The conviction that Paul has here is going to be spelled out more explicitly shortly. I'm ready not only to, to, to suffer but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's his foundational underwriting conviction. And all of us need to say, I understand that following Christ is going to be costly. I mean, think about this month. This month is, is, is Pride Month in our culture, right? 
And what our culture is asking us to do is not just be okay with, with other people falling down and, and worshiping this, this golden idol of, of, of sexual idolatry. They're saying not only are we going to worship this, we're requiring that you do so as well. And if you don't, there is going to be a cost to pay. If you refuse to celebrate and worship with us, we're going to hold you accountable. And brothers and sisters, we have to be ready for that. We have to say, okay, I, I recognize there's going to be a cost for me not worshiping the same gods as my culture. Paul says, I'm ready. Bring it. I'm ready to do all things for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, pursue God's glory even in the face of well-meaning opposition. Okay, let's, let's think through this. Pursue God's glory even in the face of, of well-meaning opposition. Your decision to glorify God despite the cost is going to put you at odds, strangely, not just with the world, but at times it's going to put you at odds with other believers. And look what happens here in, the, in this text. First of all, they arrive in Ptolemais. So this is verse 7. They go from Tyre. They arrive in Ptolemais on their short little journey here. Now they're about 80 miles from Jerusalem. And then they're there with the church for other brothers for about a day. Then verse 8. They depart and they come to Caesarea. Now they're about 60 miles from Jerusalem. If Paul is not going to arrive in Jerusalem, something needs to be done, and something needs to be done quickly. Luke then brings two old friends back onto the scene. He brings two more people into the story we've seen before. The first is Philip the evangelist in verse 8. Remember the last time we saw Philip? The last time we saw Philip was in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, remember Philip is proclaiming the gospel in Samaria. He proclaims the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then in verse 40, it says as he's preached the gospel all the towns, he comes into Caesarea. So Philip had, in chapter 8, had gone to Caesarea. Now we see Philip has had a family. He has these four unmarried daughters. And it says these four unmarried daughters are, are prophesying. This is uh, not in contradiction to what we've seen earlier in Acts, remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter quoted Joel and said what, what people are seeing here in the, this, this time of prophecy is what God said would happen, that your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall, shall see visions, your old men shall see dreams, even my male and female servants in those days I'm going to pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And so as we've seen before in the book of Acts, what's happening here with Philip and his, daughter, his daughters, are, are they, they're they're uh, accompanying the testimony of the gospel through prophecy. God reveals, uh, continues to reveal his truth in, in some spectacular ways here in the early church. Now, then we bring another character we've seen before onto the, into the story again. It says in verse 10, we're staying many days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. And remember Agabus? We saw Agabus last in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it by the elders to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Agabus comes back. That's, that's what happened with Agabus before. He had come in to the area and to Antioch from Jerusalem. And he said, look, there's going to be a famine. This is the word of the Lord. There's going to be a famine. He prophesied concerning that. And so what did the church do? 
They said, okay, this is the truth that God is revealing. There's going to be a famine. What's a reasonable thing to do? We should send relief to the saints that are there in Judea. So here's what's going to happen. Reasonable assumption, this is what we should do. Now, Agabus comes to Paul and the people who are traveling with him here in Caesarea. And he gives another prophecy. He says, it says, he took Paul's belt, this is verse 11. He, he bound his own feet and hands and says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. So this is, this is what the Spirit is revealing. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and they're going to deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So that's the prophecy. And then based upon that prophecy, what do the, what do the saints there think that Paul should do? Luke says we, we, we so Luke includes himself in this group, he says we, we urged him. We urged him, all of us, don't go up to Jerusalem. If this is what God is, is telling you is going to happen, if you do this, then, then do something else. If this is going to happen, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, Paul chooses to not heed their counsel. These are good people. These are, these are dear friends. Paul has deep relationships with, with these other believers. Remember partying in verse 1, the praying together on the beach in verse 5, and the urging that's taken here. In fact, in verse 13, it's going to, say, it's going to tell us that there were tears that accompanied this urging. So here's the situation as I understand it. You have a believer who has a clear word from the Lord regarding what he is to do, and you also have a clear word from the Lord regarding what will happen if he does what the Lord has told him to do. And it's not pleasant. And some well-meaning believers are encouraging him to take the safe route. Here's what I want us to think about as, as we think about this text. What do we do when other believers tell us not to do what we think God wants us to do? What do we do when we have this, this path that we think we should walk and other believers are coming alongside us and saying, don't walk that path? Well, let me lay out four scenarios here. Let me give you four different scenarios. And these scenarios go from, on one hand, don't do what you think you were supposed to do to definitely continue to do what you think you were supposed to do. So here's scenario number one. This is, this is a situation where don't do what you think you were supposed to do. So scenario number one. In scenario number one, there is a direction you think you should go, you think God wants you to go, and yet there is a clear word from the Lord, special revelation in God's word to not do that thing. So, for example, maybe you're a, you're, you're a kid and you're angry with your brother. And as you're angry with your brother because he has broken your beloved toy, you're thinking, I don't think I should forgive my brother. I think I should give my brother the, the silent treatment for a while, and uh, he, he doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And then mom and dad come alongside you and say, no, this is, this is what God's word says about 
how to treat your brother who's wronged you. You need to forgive. You need to extend, extend him grace. And so you say, okay, well, this path that I thought I was going to walk, where I, th- I thought I had some pretty good reasons for doing so, I was, I was wrong. Now, here's what I, th- I think we need to realize in this first scenario. Brothers and sisters, our hearts are desperately wicked. And we can often fool ourselves into believing that the path that we are walking on is a path of obedience. And it takes other believers sometimes coming alongside us and saying, look, this is what God's word says. And you say, well, I think God's okay with this. And other believers have to come to you and say, no, this is, God is not okay with this. Think about the book of Jeremiah. This happens over and over again, where people say, I'm going to walk in a way that's different than what God says I'm supposed to do, that's in disobedience to God, and I think God's okay with it. So, for example, Jeremiah 7, the prophet says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? So the people in Jeremiah's time were thinking that they could walk in disobedience and God would be okay with them. That's scenario number one. And, and Jeremiah's saying, No, 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 that, that's incredible foolishness. Or later in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, don't listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? So, brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to see. Sometimes you think that you can walk on a path, and it's in disobedience to what God has called you to do, and other believers are going to come alongside you and say, no, 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 it is not going to be well with you if you do this. And you say, well, I, I heard another teacher said this is okay for me to, to live this way or to, to walk and abandon my family or to, to walk in disobedience to lie on my tax returns. or I, I think it's okay. I think God's going to, it's not that big of a deal. God loves me. He'll forgive me. And other people are coming alongside you and say, do not walk this path. Do not walk this path. You need to turn, right? That's scenario number one. There is divine special revelation to tell you not to walk the way you think you should go. Now, scenario number two, in scenario number two, maybe there's not a chapter and verse that people can point you to but you kind of have this, this sense of something you should do, and other believers are coming alongside you and saying, this seems like a bad idea. This seems really unwise. So maybe, maybe you're thinking about taking on some extra responsibilities at a job or taking a new job, and other believers are coming alongside you and saying, uh, I, I don't think so. Or, or maybe... You're pursuing a relationship with someone. You're a young person. You're pursuing a relationship. And you have some friends who are coming alongside you and saying, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know about him. <laughs> he doesn't seem to have the, the same desire for the Lord that a, a man should have or, or the, that you have. And you're saying, yeah, but I just have this sense that God wants me to do this. You need to be careful there, right? God has put other believers in our life to, to give us strong cautions. And, and, and so what do I do? How do I know if, if, if what I am feeling is from the Lord or not? Well, I, th- I think, one, you want to examine your motives. What's Paul driven by? Paul is driven by a desire to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. 
And here, this is something very interesting to me. So often, people who are in the second category will say to me, man, I just think God is calling me to do this. And you say, well, well what is this thing that God's calling you to do? Well, I think God is just calling me to do this thing that's going to exalt my name. Really? That's, that's interesting that, that God's so passionate about that. God's so passionate about this thing that's going to help you pursue your flesh. I'm much more confident that perhaps God is calling to some, someone to something when they say, you know what, I think God is calling me to this, this ministry that's going to cause me to labor away in anonymity. <laughs> really? That yeah, may be. Another thing we do in, when we're in this scenario, potentially, is we say, okay, I want to think about the people who are speaking to me and what their motives are in the words that they're saying. My dad said something to me once that I, I, I quoted without attributing to him this past week to one of my own children. My, my dad said to me one time, he says, look, just remember there are only two people in your life right now who only want what is best for you, and that is me and your mom. That is our, our sole motivation and all the counsel and advice that we're giving you. And so I, I, I take their advice very seriously, right? I, I weigh the motives of the people who are cautioning me against an action. I, I search scripture to, to say, okay, in light of these wisdom principles that these people are, are giving me, what does God's word say? I don't put my own sense of what God might want on the same level of Scripture. I'm, I'm humble. I look for warning signs in my soul. I, I pursue the glory of God. And I listen to the counsel of my friends usually in those scenarios. Now, let's talk about a third scenario. We're getting a little closer to the situation we find here. In the third scenario, we have a clear word from the Lord regarding how we walk in obedience but we have some lack of specificity in terms of how to apply that. So there's a clear direction from the Lord. So, for example, share the gospel. Pro- proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the Great Commission. There's less specificity in terms of how to do that. And so let's say that I, I believe I want to walk in obedience to the Lord and I want to be involved in this, this gospel ministry, but I have some people who are saying, look, I don't think that's the best way to do it. Maybe you're a young person, you say, I want to engage in missions. I want to go to the, this ministry, but you have some, some people who are saying, I don't know if that's the best mission. Or maybe you say, I want to devote my life to this ministry, and your parents are saying, yeah, but you have this, this degree in this other field, and shouldn't you pursue that instead? What do I do in those scenarios? Well, I think it's somewhat similar. I want to be cautious. I want to examine my motives. But I, I want to recognize that sometimes other believers are going to have blind spots and, and motives as well. And I want to realize I don't have the absolute authority of God's word in this scenario, but I need to obey my conscience. And so if, if I, after listening to the counsel of other believers who are saying, yeah, you know, um, if, if, you, if you pursue this, this mission, it could lead to, to you losing your life. I say, yeah, I, I recognize that. I'm, I'm concerned about that as well. But, but your counsel here isn't about my motives. It's not about the actual ministry. It's, it's not about my aptitude for this ministry. It's, it's just simply you're, you're worried about the cost. I'm willing to pay that. I'm, I feel the, the conviction of, of walking in obedience to God, to his special revelation in, in this scenario. I'm, I'm going to continue to walk in obedience to the Lord. And again, we want to be careful here. We want to talk through this with, with godly people and, and think through, have I, have I really... I've really thought through all the issues here. And then the fourth scenario, of course, is, is, is where we have a clear word from the Lord on what to do and what's going to happen. And despite having a clear word from the Lord, we have other believers who are telling us not to walk on that path of obedience. And that's where we absolutely 
no question asked, obey the Lord instead of what other people are telling us. And I think what we need to recognize is oftentimes, and I don't think that's what's happening in this scenario, but oftentimes we're going to find ourselves out of step with other people who would name the name of Christ because they're not as passionate about walking in obedience to the Lord. That's a reality of the culture in which we live in at times. For example, you said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live a life of holiness. I'm going to walk in complete abandonment in pursuit of the, the glory of God. And sometimes other people are going to, as I mentioned before, some other people are going to have a, a desire to walk in the flesh. And as you say, okay, I'm going to walk in obedience to the Lord, other people say, oh, that's too, that's too, um, that's too high a price to pay. It's going to put you out of step with the culture. Paul tells Timothy, look, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And a, desire who des- a person who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be out of step with the times. I'm concerned, and I've mentioned this before, I'm very concerned about the state of the church in our culture. That not only have we become fleshly, but we've encouraged others to be fleshly as well. And content with fleshliness. There's a great book that I've mentioned before, one of the best books I've ever read, probably in my top three or four books, uh, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And and there's a a chapter titled Holiness. And and let me just read a couple paragraphs as he talks about why holiness is so important. He, He says we're not saved by holiness. Holiness doesn't make us saved, doesn't make us righteous before God. We're saved on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ alone. But as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, there are, there are some indicators that true life has taken place, that there have been true regeneration. Listen to what J.C. Ryle writes. He says, We must be holy because this is the one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Paul tells Titus, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, from all sin, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous for good works. In short, says J.C. Ryle, to talk of men being saved from the guilt of sin without being at the same time saved from its dominion in their hearts is to contradict the witness of all Scripture. We're called by God, he saved us, to walk in holiness. That's that's why he saved us. And then he says this, You may say, it was never meant that all Christians should be holy, and that holiness, such as you've described, is only for the great saints, for people of uncommon gifts. And Ryle says, I answer, I cannot see that in Scripture. I read that every man who hath hope in Christ purifieth himself. Every believer purifies himself in Christ. And then, you may say, it's impossible to be so holy and to do our duty in this life and at the same, sorry, it's impossible to be so holy and yet at the same time do our duty in this life. Like, we can't live and be holy. The thing cannot be done. And J.C. Ryle responds, I answer, you are mistaken. It can be done. In Christ, nothing is impossible. It has been done by many. David and Obadiah and Daniel and the servants of Nero's household are all examples that go on to prove it. And you may say, J.C. Ryle writes, you may say, if I were so holy, I'd be unlike other people. And J.C. Ryle says, I answer, I know it well. It is just what you ought to be, unlike other people. Christ's true servants always were unlike the world around them a separate people 
a peculiar people, and you must be so too. If pursuing the glory of Jesus Christ and doing all things for the sake of his name is your overriding passion, that's going to help you know that you're walking in obedience to God. And you're going to listen to other wise and, and godly believers. And as, as, as wise and godly believers who are also passionate about the glory of the name of Jesus come and say, hey, what you're doing is not pursuing the name of the Jesus. You're going to respond, okay, I need to repent of that. But even sometimes as you talk to other godly believers, you're going to say, look, we have, we have different understandings about how to, how to apply these principles. And you're going to say, ultimately, I'm going to walk in obedience to God and not to anyone else. Here's the third truth I want us to think about. Pursue God's glory and then allow others to do the same. Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I love Paul's response here. I like this because it affirms his love for them. He's not going to do what he is going to do because he's like, well, who cares what you guys think? You guys are a, a way to drag. I, I don't care what you say. No, there's a, a true relational affection that he has for them. He isn't resisting them because their entreaties haven't had an effect. He, he's very moved by them. He says, I'm, you're, you're weeping. And then that word, breaking my heart, that, that word there describes uh, kind of this, this pounding away. It was a word that would be used to describe someone doing laundry, washing their clothes, and, and pounding them with stones in order to, to clean them. One translator translates it this way, why are you pounding away at my heart? And so their, their entreaties are, are affecting him deeply. But it's Paul. It's Paul. He's got an unshakable, foundational conviction that he returns to. I'm going to do whatever I need to do for the name of of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready, he says, verse 13, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem, whatever it takes to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus. And so the disciples come to realization, the other believers in verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we, we stopped. It says, and, and they and we said, so Luke is including himself in this, we said, let the, let the will of the Lord be done. And this is really the realization that, that each of us need to come to as we think about our relationships with other believers. We, we recognize that we have influence in people's life. And then we also recognize not only do we have influence, but that we have responsibility. We need to resist the urge to tell other people what God wants them to do in areas that we're not sure. It's a possibility that we could be asking them to, to do things that God wouldn't want them to do. So, for example, maybe you're a, you're a, a parent of, of children, and as your, your child begins to grow and begins to, to think about what they do, want to do in life, they, they say, you know, Mom, I, I, I think I'm being called to, to missions. And as they think about going into missions, you as a parent begin to think about all the, the costs that are going to be to their, their life as they, they go into this, this path, 
path of, of missionary work, or maybe you hear them talking about going in, into ministry, or maybe you think that you hear them talking about this, this job that they're going to take that's going to allow them to be more involved in, in caring for other people, and you just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hardship in your, your life, and I just want to encourage you to think about the cost, but you go, you kind of cross that line between helping them think about the cost to, to trying to dissuade them from paying the cost. And here, I want you to think about this very carefully, not just in terms of relationship with, with your children, but in relationship with other believers. There is a very real possibility that you are urging people not to go to Jerusalem whenever they are focused on the new Jerusalem. So there are these people who are, are thinking about the new Jerusalem and eternity with Christ and the great treasure of pursuing all things for the glory of God. And they're focused on that and they're pursuing that. And they have, for the joy set before them, they're willing to endure the sufferings with Christ. And, and they're seeing new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, and you're seeing current Jerusalem. And with that myopic focus, you're preventing them from pursuing things that are going to bring them eternal joy. We have to be very careful, brothers and sisters. We, we don't know what God's purposes are for other people. Hannah, one of Hannah's friends, that was part of her wedding, had, had made some really hard decisions to, to travel to some very dangerous parts of the world right now. And she doesn't have a special revelation from the Lord that says, you must go to this place, but, but she's, she knows that God desires her to share the gospel. And so as she was talking about going to this place, those of us who, who love her say, hey, have you, have you thought about this? And have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? Yeah, 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 okay. Well, we've got to be careful here. There's, maybe that's not what I would be called to do, but I, I want to be very careful to not prevent her from pursuing a path that is going to be costly but lead to joy indescribable for eternity. She says, this is what I'm willing to do for the sake of the name Jesus. We say, let the will of the Lord be done. And we say that for ourselves as well. The third missionary journey comes to an end here in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, they go up to Jerusalem. And the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And thus begins the next phase of Paul's ministry for the name of Jesus. And he concludes this missionary journey with the, the same focus that he began it with. A singular focus to pursue the glory of God with abandon, to treasure Christ, whatever the cost, to live for the glory of God, we joyfully pay it. Let me encourage you to Turn your heart now to, to thinking about that in relationship to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. I want to read again from Philippians chapter 3. This is what we proclaim as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. As we partake of the Lord's Supper together, 
this morning, we're saying we treasure Christ. We recognize the immeasurable value of Christ and that compared to Christ, all other things are, are rubbish. Our career, our achievements, all other things are, are nothing compared to Christ. In Christ, we've obtained salvation, not through our own works, but through his righteousness, a righteousness we receive, Christ's righteousness that we receive through faith. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we're recognizing that. And it's helping us to prepare to pay whatever cost, whatever price God would have us pay to follow after him. Not all of us will suffer the loss of our life for following after Christ, but some of us may. But all of us, as we walk out of this room this morning, aware of the treasure of Christ, all of us who are committed to the treasure of Christ will pay some price. Let's ask God to help us be prepared to pay that cost as we recognize the treasure that's Jesus. I'm going to give you some time here just to, to pray in your own hearts here. I'm going to start us off and then just give you some, some time here, a moment. Father, we recognize now, as we look at your word and the example of your servant Paul, the approach to life all of us must have, to live with a, a focus on you and, and your glory, to treasure Christ at, at the cost of all of the things. And as, as you bring to mind things in our life that walking in obedience to you may cost us, help us to be willing to, to joyfully pay that price. And Father, we just now, in, in, in this moment, give all things over to you. We give to you our marriages. We give to you our children. We give to you our careers. We give to you our school achievements. We give to you our friends. We give to you our relationships. We give to you our health. We give you, to you the health of those that we love. We give all things to you, and we are willing to pay, by your enabling grace, whatever price you would have us pay to glorify your name. Father, we just take a moment here and, and confess, first of all, our, our lack of willingness to give all things for you. Then we also just ask you to help us turn over, even now in, in our hearts, different idols that we are clinging to. And we worship you. We worship you, the, the triune God, God our Father, who sent the Son to die on the cross, and now, through the enabling work of the Spirit, helps us to walk in a, in, a, in a way that brings glory to your name. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.